Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Well, it is our great pleasure to have the Wimbledon champion of 2013 here with us on the Tennis Podcast. Hello, Marion Bartoli. Hello, David and Catherine. It's an absolute treat for us because both Catherine and I, for anybody who doesn't know, we, we get to work with you throughout the year, whether it's uh, Catherine on the TV or me on the radio. And I know that I, I said it to you, uh, and I really mean it. It's, I think you're one of the best commentators around to commentate with. And, uh, and so I'm thrilled to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. No, it's not my mother language. I'm trying English to really have a point every time I'm talking. That's probably why I do a better job. I tried to persuade David to do this in French. but <laughs> Yeah, but that, that wouldn't have worked because <laughs> I am challenged when it comes to languages. We want to go back in time. Mm-hmm. To start with, Marion, because your career is is one of great fascination to me because it's it's so different to to so many people. I mean, I think everybody's career is different, but the way that you learnt your technique, two hands on both sides, and t- tell us about how that came about because not everybody has that sort of style. Well, I think a lot of things are very specific into my life. Uh, not only my tennis career, but to come back to my tennis career, I grew up in a very small village in France, a former village, um, really without any tennis background whatsoever. My father is a doctor. My mom is a nurse. My parents were playing really recreational tennis, nothing that could really put me into the tennis court to try to be a professional tennis player whatsoever. But i always been obsessed by tennis since my childhood. So I was... Going to the tennis, we had three small tennis courts in my village. I was going there after school just to see other people playing. I used to watch my father playing with my brother when I was three years old or four years old. And one day I decided to pick up a racket. Now, people might not know me, but I'm very stubborn. So when I say I want to pick up a racket, until I have a racket in my hand, I won't quit. So that was the first time when I was five years and a half and I pick up a racket and I'm a lefty person. I do everything with my left hand. I write, I do anything with my left hand really. If you give me a ball, naturally I would catch it with my left hand. My father was a righty, so he teach me tennis on the right side. Fortunately, I was not strong enough from that hand. So for me, it was just easier to pick up the racket using two hands just to help with the strength because I was just not strong enough. 
and from that point, I grew up idolizing Monica Seles, playing two-handed on both sides, idolizing Pete Sampras, winning Wimbledon almost every single year. And that's when I made this little dream when I was eight years old that one day I will be, uh, or I will try to be a Grand Slam champion, and most likely Wimbledon. <laughs> wow. What a, what a thing to imagine as a child and have come true. Well, it's, it's funny because my parents kept the letter that I wrote when I was eight years old for my eighth birthday. So we had a little tradition when we had to write on the letter and give it to my parents what I would like for my birthday presents. And then sometimes they were making my wish coming true, sometimes not. And uh, that year I wrote that I would like first the women trophy, <laughs> second a Monopoly game board, and third some purse to make some bracelets myself. So I get the, the second and the third, and the first one my mom told me, well, you will have to earn it yourself, because unfortunately we can't buy you the Wimbledon trophy. And my parents kept the letter, so at home there is a Wimbledon trophy as a champion, as well as a finalist one, and in the middle of it, the letter that I wrote when I was eight years old. Do you remember a moment, a spark, that made you fall in love with tennis? Well, that was my first tournament I played, so I was six years and few months I believe four months old when I played my first tennis tournament and it was that's actually the first tournament I ever won <laughs> and I still have the trophy of it <laughs> it was a four player draw so not much and they had basically three other girls in the village that were playing tennis and they were missing one and I made the fourth one but I was three to four years younger than the other girls and when you're six and the other one are nine or ten it makes a big difference because I was barely passing over the net my height was quite low and I made the fourth one, and I really wanted to win. I've been very competitive since my childhood in, in everything I was doing. So I asked my dad to take me after school to make me practice every single day, <laughs> which my mom said, you're completely crazy. And then I was playing on my own in my garage against the wall of my garage with a normal tennis ball, and the noise was really annoying my mom. So she bought me some sponge balls, so it was not making any noise when I was playing. And that's when I really became extremely obsessed about tennis. And that the pathway to being a tennis professional, I mean, it's not straightforward. You, you can't just think, oh, I want to play tennis, and, and there it is for you. There are, we see all these people coming through different pathways, whether it be through an academy or whether there's a federation in your country that can help you. Mm-hmm. What was yours like? Well, my pathway was very different because I was coming from such a small place and everything was so far from my father to just drive me. This was, where where was this? It was near Lyon, but when I say near, it's still 150 kilometers away. Okay. So it's it's really if you're coming almost in the middle of nowhere and, and it was just so far for my dad to drive me to playing, let's say, regional tennis or county tennis, you would say, in the UK and to play national tennis was just way too far away. So... For me, I, it was really for my parents' first school. When I was finished with my homeworks, I could go to the court and practice. That's why very often, especially when I was two years in advance of school, so when I passed my last degree when I was 16, I was not going to the tennis court before 10.30 to 11 p.m. By that time, my dad couldn't play with me, of course, anymore, so he just bought a ball machine. And I was playing with a ball machine for two to three hours in a row from, like, 11 p.m. to 1, 1.30 a.m., and next day I was at school. And that's how I, I think I pick up this mentality of really 
trying my hardest every time I was on the court, being really competitive, really feisty, not giving up on anything because it was just so hard to already be on the court. He was demanding so much from my parents to drive me to tournaments, to take time away from my brother, to being away every single weekend that I very early on recognized the importance of giving my best every time I had the chance to be on the tennis court. And I think probably if I didn't have a pass that would be so difficult, I would have not have the same mentality because in France, when you're coming from a big city like Paris, like Lyon, like Marseille, everything is a lot easier for you. You have big tennis clubs. You have a lot of tournaments around you, around your house. So tennis become very easy in a sort of ways to be on the court and just play. And for me, it was very difficult. It required my dad to drive me two hours after his time when he was working to drive me back two hours. It was a four hours drive just to go and play one single match. So every time I was on the court, I was really trying to win every single time. This might be a slightly bizarre question, but you mentioned your brother yeah. there and something that always fascinates me about athletes. I mean, any sort of extremely gifted, dedicated children, teenagers, young adults is what it's like for the siblings of those people because the you've just described in such detail the dedication it required of you and of your parents mm -hmm. and it's something I've heard Daniela Hantikova talk about a lot she's extremely close to her brother that sort of element of it all fascinates me well we have a big uh, age gap with my brother he's eight years and a half older than me But that said, when I was seven or eight, I could still play against him or with him. He was 15, sort of that age, teenage age, really. And he was having his younger sister that wanted to beat him every time we were playing. So my mom, because every time he was finishing in tears, every single time we were playing together. So my mom decided one day that that was enough because <laughs> he was really ending up in a bad way, like for really fighting. And I was saying he was cheating on the board. He was saying I was cheating on the board as well. It was really bad. <laughs> so my mom said, I have enough of your whole fighting against each other and, and tennis-wise, and I have enough of the entire thing, tennis included. <laughs> so you're not going to play against each other anymore. Either your dad will train you or your dad will train your brother, but you don't play against each other. And from that day when my mom decides something, she's actually the boss of the family, so we never play against each other. But we had, in a sort of way, a, a tough relationship when I was... 10, 11, 12, and my brother was 18, 19, 20 because I was taking so much space for my parents to just you know, take me to another tennis tournament. Tennis was always a discussion, the topic about the family and everything. And, and especially when my dad stopped being a, a doctor to put all his money, invest sort of me to try to give me a chance to become a professional tennis player. That was a high risky decision for the entire family, not only for myself, but for my brother and my mom. But As I was moving on into my tennis career, we get a lot closer because my brother understood then it was everything to actually have, in a sort of way, a better life and a better destiny. So we got closer as I was moving on on age, but when we were younger, it was a lot of competition between the two of us. Wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating dynamic, and you see a lot of... I mean, it strikes me with Stefano Sitsipas at the moment. I mean, he's got a much younger sister and she travels everywhere with, with the family. It's, you know, it's, it's a dynamic that's not, not necessarily talked about that much. Yeah. And, and, and did you talk about that later in life? Well, absolutely, yes. And especially now that my brother has two kids as well and uh, 
the oldest one, Leo, my nephew, is more into football, which is good because my husband is a professional football player, so now they play each other, with each other all the time. My younger one, which is four and a half, is so cute because every time I, I have him on FaceTime or video WhatsApp calls or whatever, he's just telling me, Hunty, when are you coming back? I want to go on the court with you, which melts my heart. But for sure, we talked about the, the tough time that we had to go through. We, I think we saw it in a different ways and we felt it in different ways. I felt this place where we grew up was so difficult for me. For my brother, he saw it in with a different lens just because he was older. He had his friends there. It was not so difficult for me. I felt it deeply, extremely difficult to go through that period. But it was just for the better. And when we see both of us, the life we have now, and we're happily married, he has two kids, I'm... I'm going to arrive there at some point. I hope to have my own kids and hopefully I will be able to take them to tennis courts or to tennis lessons. Um, we see it in different ways now. We are adults. When we grew up, it was, I have to admit it, it was a lot of fighting because also I, I was so competitive that I really wanted to beat my brother, which I'm not sure it was a nice way <laughs> to be a sister. But it was the way I was really inside me. I wanted to be number one at school. I wanted to win a Monopoly game every time I was playing those stupid Monopoly game boards. I, I had it to win and my dad understood that at some point it was just easier to let me win rather than trying to fight with me because I could play forever. When you um, joined the tour and you become a full-time tennis professional traveling yeah. the world and, and it's a traveling circus. Everybody's together. Once you get to a certain ranking all the same people go to the same places. Yeah. You had an unorthodox and unusual playing style, mm -hmm. and it seemed quite an unusual set of training techniques. I, I've watched, I watched a video where you're just driving backhand volleys from the baseline, yep. full swing, one after another, one after another. I've never seen anything like it before. And I would imagine that people would watch that, other players watch that, other coaches watch that, and be, what am I looking at here? Yep. I just wonder what, what was life like for you on the tour? Well, it was quite an isolated life because I think I have also a different brain. I, I think differently probably from other players or from other girls, especially now when I'm coaching and I see how the girls are functioning, the way they think it was completely different from the way I, I was thinking and I was brought really and the values I had from my parents. But for me, the most important thing at the end was the results no matter what it takes and no matter what it requires. And I knew I was not the most talented one. I knew especially I was not the most physically gifted one compared to the one I had to beat. So I was playing in the era of Kim Clasters, Justinina, Serena, probably at her best, Venus, Amini Morris, Mo Mary Pierce, all the Russian, you name them. We had the competi competition was so fierce that for me, in order to win one Grand Slam, I had to practice more than the other ones. And I was very well aware of that because I realized that when I was stepping on the court, naturally, I was not at the level of Kim or I was not at the level of Amity. But if I wanted to be there, if I would practice hard enough and more than them, maybe I had a chance. So for me, it was not even a question of how many hours I had to do. I didn't care at all. For me, it was just how I can do to beat them when I will have to face them. And that really drive me throughout my career. And that's why when I look at now the level and when I see how the girls are playing and what we used to do, all of us, really, 
I'm shocked by the fact that we used to practice so much more than what we're they are doing now. We used to do so much more because the competition was just so fierce. And in order f to exist in that competition, you really had to put so many hours on, which I don't feel it's really the case now. When do you think that changed? Well, I think it changed when the Russians starting to retire. So when Anastasia Miskina, Elena Dementieva, also some of the Japanese one like I, I Sugi, I'm really the hard worker girls but when I grew up and I arrived on the tour I used to see Monica at 7.30 in the morning on the court practicing I used to see Serena at 8 in the morning practicing on the court so you felt well if you want to have a chance to beat those girls one day you better do the same thing because otherwise why would you beat them really you're here just arriving being ranked 50, 60, 70 in the world they're already top 5, top 10 if you want to take their spots you better do the same thing and I think once we have retired ourselves, Daniela also being part of it, we're practicing countless time together at eight in the morning, being already on the courts. When we all left, I felt the girl that were arriving didn't have really the same anger. And the example was more to be at the court at 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning or 12, practicing just once a day, that was enough. When I used to play, it was not even in question that you had to practice twice. We didn't even really ask our coach. It was just the way it was. That was it. And maybe when you're hitting 28 or 30 years old and your body's retired, you start to slow down a little bit. But before that age, it was just like that. And I feel the example I set now is not the same one. And, and that's probably why the other girls just arriving are just seeing a different example. And they feel, well, if they're doing this and it's enough, why should I really do more than this? And, and just going back to, to something else you said there, are you able to to put your finger on or explain, you said you, you felt that you thought differently yeah. to others on the tour, had different values. Are you able to put your finger on exactly how? Well, I just felt that for me, because my parents put so much effort into my tennis career, I was not allowed to fail. It was just impossible in my head and in my mind. That's why I was so disappointed when I lost my first Wimbledon final to Venus because I beat Justin in the semifinal. She was number one in the world. I beat Jankovic, number three in the world. Before that, I really had a, a tough draw and still made it to the final. And when the match really counts, I just failed. And that ideas of failing, I, it was just, I couldn't cope with it, really. So that's why it took me a year and yeah, no, half really to recover psychologically from that loss because I felt that my parents gave up so much and, and really put so much effort into me that being a failure was not an option. And that's when I, I you know, started the 2009 season, I had better results and I was able to build toward that final of 2013 that I really felt no matter what it takes, even if my shoulder was just breaking apart, there would have been no chance I would have lost that final because that was just not an option. And I felt that some other girls might be slightly more gentle with themselves, not all of them, of course, but especially when I see some of the girls now, the way they react after a loss, I'm just like, did you actually really lose the match? Because it doesn't seem that way when, I saw, when I'm seeing you. So I think there probably is a new generation and the new th thinking process, but... We're definitely different from them. Because p perspective is very fashionable, right? For, for players to come into an interview room after a loss and say, look, I'm disappointed, but I've got to have perspective on this. It's not the end of the world. Do you feel that maybe they should allow themselves to, to, 
to feel it a bit more? Well, it's very difficult to give lessons to someone or, you know, tell them, well, you shouldn't feel that way. But for me, that was certainly not an option to feel that way. Now, am I right or am I wrong? I, I don't know. But when I read quotes from other athletes, there are champions in other different sports and really high-level successful champion. Most likely, they're extremely disappointed when they lose something. So it just, I feel... The way this new generation has been brought up with a lot more social media and a lot more sort of fake interaction with people, it's more about how you can sort of fake it in a way and how you can give an outside that looks fine for everybody that might feel different inside. So I'm, you know, I, I'm just trying to take a step back and, and not judging the outside, which sometimes is a little bit fake. But I believe that if you want to win really huge things you have to really feel a loss and I, I don't think it's, it's possible to feel like whether you win or you lose at the end of the day just the same spirit you have and, and the same feeling inside you There was a, a six year gap between your two Wimbledon finals yeah. I mean it sounds like it was a really tough period after that Wimbledon final loss of 07 and, it, and you had to rebuild yourself to get to where you, you got to I mean I, that's the other thing isn't it that it, obviously you want you want to succeed. You put in pressure on yourself to succeed, but can it be damaging to 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 want it that much? Well, looking back to how I felt sometimes um, after a tournament or after a difficult period when I didn't have the results I wanted to have, yes, of course, it was very damaging psychologically, especially because as much as my father was trying to help me. He never been on a tennis court playing a professional tennis match. He never been an athlete himself. So I believe probably for my own kids, because I've been an athlete and my husband is an athlete as well, you are you know exactly how they feel when they're disappointed. And for my father it was more about okay, how can we build from scratch basically? Because after a loss it was a three, four days period when I just I couldn't sometimes eat. I was just staying and locking myself in a hotel room just drinking water for three or four days. I couldn't speak, I couldn't eat. It was almost like a little death that I had to survive from and rebuild and restart. And and that was painful and it was a difficult process every single time and it was very draining. But I felt that in the long term that helped me to push myself to limits that I never thought I would be able to achieve. Because when I look back at the amount of energy and the amount of practice I was doing every single day, it was almost incredible that I found this energy inside myself. And I think that because my, my mental thoughts and my mental process was so strong that it drives me to push me over my own limits, really. And you did push yourself to, to your limits and actually you won Wimbledon. I mean, I remember the year, the year after when we came back, you pointed to the, the court when we were on our way to commentary. You said, that's my court. And you, your face just lit up. And I just wanted to go back in time to to 2013 and and when you're you're making your way through this draw you're on the, the brink you're on the verge of this final against Sabine Lizicki um what's what's going through your mind that night before well a lot of things because I lost to her two years before after beating Serena in the round of 16 which is probably one of the tougher thing you can achieve is to beat Serena on grass at Wimbledon especially so I remember that moment when I lost to her two years back on that same court. Roof closed, yes, but that same court. 
And I just told myself, well, it's your last chance to actually win Wimbledon and make your wish a reality and make your dream a reality. But a lot of things was happening in my personal life. My parents were getting through a divorce, which was very traumatic for me, seeing my parents all the time together. They end up being back together after that. But at that moment, my, my father didn't tell me. So that for me, they were getting divorced. I played that whole women without my dad as well, because I was just trying to figure out a way in a way on my own. My body was breaking apart. So it was in a way very positive that I made it to the final and a lot of negatives from the points I just said. And I remember the night before just saying to myself, you're ready for that moment. And she's not. She never played a final. You know how you felt for your first final. And you're going to use this and feed you from that to go over your own fears. And actually, I use her fears to help me to be confident. So I remember just looking at her eyes when we were in that room that you wait in before going on court and you take that small path and just seeing her face and seeing me six years back when I was just so scared that I pretend to be happy, but I was just so scared to go into that final and miss my match. And I said, okay, that was me six years back. So if I put pressure on her since the first point, I have a huge chance to win the match. And that's how I went through my match. Was the moment of victory everything you dreamed of it being? Because when you've wanted something that much for so long, sometimes it can be a moment of disbelief or even anticlimactic in in that moment. It's almost impossible for something to live up to something you've wanted that much was it everything you dreamed of it was but for me it was exactly as you said I couldn't believe it for but for so many days not only at that moment in time it was just I slept with a trophy for an entire week (laughs) because I felt one morning I'm gonna wake up I'm gonna turn my head and nothing will be there and it was just a dream that I had one night and actually I I was not a women's champion so I slept with a trophy to make to sort of trying to make it a reality or try to grab some sort of reality out of my whole dream and the space I was in and, and so many things happening in your life I felt I was in a washing machine cycle and I just kept on spinning because you go from one interview to the other you're called by the French president and then <laughs> I was a huge Olympic de Marseille fan and I got a tweet from one of the best players of the team and then I get to meet the team and the whole thing so your life is completely changing because you just eat a nace on the line and you won Wimbledon and I wish I would have give up anything to just relieve those 10 seconds when I was about to serve and I serve on the line and I hear the Empire saying game set and match beats Bartoli. I would give up anything to just have a chance to relieve that moment. Of course, it's impossible. But those seconds really made my life become something else. Do you watch the video and try to recapture? Over and over and over again. (laughs) It's funny because every time I feel stressed about a situation I have in my life now, so it can be, you know, when one of my collection is about to come out as a designer or important meeting I'm taking for my designs or whatever that might be, I just rewatch that last game. I just forward it all the way to that last game and just watch it again and say, okay, you're women champion, so you can do this. <laughs> do you ever have sliding doors moment of what if I hadn't won? What would my life be like? You said you felt that whole tournament that it was your last chance. Yeah. Do you ever think about it? I know we've we've done interviews with Goran Ivanovic, and he talks about 
you know, that being his last shot in yep. 2001. If he hadn't won, he thinks he'd be, you know, homeless on the street somewhere. He's exaggerating. But do you ever have those thoughts? I do, actually. And I did, um, especially after everything that happened to me. After 2013, my anorexia, the time I spent in the hospital and everything. So you have actually more time to reflect about what your life has been to this point. And I knew exactly that I will be completely broke as, as a person if I, especially having two chances being in the final, I never at least win one time, you know. It's a thing to never be in the final when you feel, okay, well, I tried my best, but I didn't really have the level to be there. But when you're in the final, you have two chances and you can't make it one, for sure I would have been really devastating inside myself and probably I would have not be able to find a way out of my anorexia that's probably for sure but you know I, I believe in destiny and I believe that because 2013 was such a hard year for me that in a way God helped me to win that tournament because everything was almost too good to be true I was every time finishing just before the rain when the other one has to come back the day after I was able to go through the draw without dropping a set and being one of the few players that win Wimbledon without dropping a set when actually I could have won in 2011 when I was feeding in my peak form. So I felt that all the stars were just way too aligned to be just a human cause and I felt something else was helping me already. We'll talk about the elements that you've just discussed there about the, the difficulties, the struggles afterwards. Yeah. Um, but just just before we get on to that, I mean, you've won Wimbledon, same year as Andy Murray won Wimbledon, you have the Champions Dinner and then you go to Cincinnati? Yep. Toronto, Cincinnati. And it's one month later Mm -hmm. and your career is over. Yeah. We we had no warning about this. We didn't know that you were struggling to the extent that you describe. Mm -hmm. You you say your body was kind of breaking and this was your shoulder. And I I remember waking up um, in the UK the night after you'd held that press conference and I don't even think there was any TV coverage. There wasn't even a camera in the room as far as I'm aware Mm -hmm. that you had said my career is over and this is one month after winning Wimbledon when I guess we all thought that this was almost the start from yeah. the outside what led to that what what was the the breaking point in your mind that this this has got to stop now well first of all I I never been the kind of person that feel they have to have in a way cameras or public sort of making or calling your career you know, I never felt that it has to be sort of a goodbye and then having all the, <laughs> the presence from a tournament or the people or the, the ex-players saying how great you were and, and the whole scene of tennis being aware of it. I always felt if it's my decision, no matter where it is and on which court I've been just played or how many journalists there is in the press room, I will call it a career because for me it was more important my inside feelings rather than making a, a big public goodbye. But I remember vividly when I started to practice after Wimbledon to get ready for the US summer, that after 40 or 45 minutes, I just simply couldn't practice anymore. So we were trying to find solution with my physio, we were trying to find solutions with my dad, trying to see if we could reduce the pain somehow by changing the weight of the racket or 
yeah, trying solutions, trying different solutions, with, but just nothing was helping because it was the tendon was just so damaged on my shoulder, and not only my shoulder, it was the same for my Achilles. I started to have pain in my hip as well. Because I had to practice so much, my brain, I think, when I finally got my dream, just couldn't hold the pain anymore. I think I was able to block the pain to a certain degree when I still didn't have my Grand Slam, but when that happened, I think I felt empty. I just felt that I just couldn't take the pain anymore. I just couldn't, couldn't force myself to go over that pain anymore. And I played my, um, my first tournament in Toronto. I win my first match against Lauren Davis, a good friend of mine, in exactly 55 minutes. And I remember the last two games being so painful. I call my dad afterwards say, I just don't know how I'm going to go through this because it has been under one hour, and if it goes a little bit over that, I just can't hold the racket anymore. And the, my second match is exactly what happened. The first set was a bit longer. The third, second and third set were just nightmare physically. And I go to Cincinnati. I play against Simona in the first round. I win the first set, you know, being an acceptable pain. After 45, 50 minutes, I just couldn't physically play anymore. And for me to just go in week in and week out, knowing exactly when is going to be the break period in a way, after 45 minutes, 50 minutes, you can't do it anymore. And just sort of being on the court and taking the money and or just trying to take the fame of being a Wimbledon champion didn't add enough value regarding what I was going through psychologically of losing every single match that was passing over 50 minutes. So I just called my dad and I said, that I think that's it for me. I just can't do it anymore. I just can't really. And I would have been, could have been in China, in New Haven, in Cincinnati, and court 20 in Cincinnati would have been the same for me because I just physically couldn't do it anymore. You've, um, you've alluded to it a bit. I mean, it's not unusual for retirement to be incredibly difficult. How difficult was it for you? It was, you know, it felt that in a way that was the right decision. And in a way, it was the worst decision I ever take because everyone started calling and saying, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Can you imagine the amount of money you can take from being a women champion, the, the appearance fee, the contract, especially being French? You know, there is so much sponsor in France following tennis and following tennis players. And Amelie was the last one to win a Grand Slam back in 2006. You're the second one, or the third one, or fourth one. Seven years later, you're going to get all the contract. You're going to be number one in France, leading up the Fed Cup team. I was like, I just can't play anymore. You have to forget the Marion that just won a month ago. She just can't play that way anymore. It's over. It's finished. But when you have so many people repeating you this over and over again, you just felt what am I doing? So it was very confusing for so many months, but then seeing how damaged my shoulder was months and months after that when I just couldn't lift my arm in the morning, everything that was required, a little bit of strength was just very painful. I didn't want to arrive at a point when in your normal life, you're physically damaged. And that's when I felt a few months later that was actually the right decision. But for two to three months after that, especially because US Open was just around the corner, it was not easy to deal with everything. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And the years that followed, um, I mean, we commentated together. Yeah. Um, you, you were on TV with Catherine. There was a period in a couple of years ago when you said you wanted to make a comeback. And the period in between then, we know you were very unwell. Yeah. And there were, I mean, it's, it's a difficult subject to, to talk about. So it's, re- it's really up to you how you feel about talking about it. But I remember there were, there were different stories that we were told about, about what was happening to you. And, and here you're talking very, very openly and very straightforwardly about, about it now. How do you reflect on that period now? Well, it was a hard learning experience, but I learned a lot. Um, you know, I went from being a professional tennis player, guided by my father daily, chasing a goal, to being a normal person, living on my own, and going through life, really. And, and that change was so radical that, you know, I had a person that grabbed on me with very bad intention, and I just didn't sow it, because for my whole life the people that were surrounding me just had the best intentions for me and of course looking back you're like how stupid I was but when you're in in the situation and in the moment it's very difficult to see it just because it's a slow growing process when someone is getting the control complete control out of you but not in one go it's not he become evil from one day to the other it just gradually increasing the control over me and just really breaking me down piece after piece and this was your boyfriend this was my ex-boyfriend I'm yeah. pretty tough mentally I think I can say that but when you have someone that literally every single day is telling you that whatever you were doing in anything even in tennis is completely wrong and he's right and you're wrong then your confidence level is really going down and I'm a person that really doesn't have much confidence to start with so when you just point on that constantly it just broke me and and the physical part of trying to lose so much weight is just because he was constantly comparing myself to other girls in the street or to other girls who were passing by that were a lot more beautiful than me a lot thinner than me a lot taller than me and I just felt at some point well if for this to stop I better be or try to be just like them 
And of course, being strong mentally, you just go into something radical when you feel, okay, I'm just going to stop to eat or barely eat a day. And I was trying to survive on, under 400 or 500 calories a day. So it's under eating so much that, you know, it become normal for me. Because at the beginning, you're a little bit hungry, but the less you eat, the less hungry you are. And I felt it was totally normal to go over a full day of working into a tournament or, or doing sports or traveling the world, hitting just 400 calories a day. So basically nothing. And, and my mind went through this constantly to a point when I just broke up with him, but I was so into not eating for so many months. I carry those habits over and over and over to the points when I hit 41 kilos. And I started my diet, I was 80 kilos. So I almost lost half of my weight, which is absolutely enormous in such a quick period of time, in eight or nine months. So it was just so traumatic that my just my body just withdrew completely. I just couldn't think clearly anymore. I was I just couldn't leave really. I couldn't grab um, remote control without feeding the electricity. I just couldn't wash myself with tap water. I had to wash myself with mineral water and so on and so on and so on. And that's when you feel okay, I have to find why why is this is happening to me and you're sort of trying to find anything but without facing the reality that I was anorexic and I didn't want to eat anymore. Did you feel supported? Did you feel the support was there? Had you felt able to to ask for it? Well, of course I had my parents and my family and everything, but anorexia is a state of mind when you want to die. You want to die. You, You don't want to live anymore. So you're sort of hearing in a way the support, but you don't want to to receive it you're pushing it away pushing it away and pushing it away to a point when you want to die on your own by yourself and that the only thing that really saved me from that is when Wimbledon told me I couldn't play the legends that was a turning point for me because tennis has been my whole life and you can take anything away from me but not tennis so that's when I felt okay if tennis is even taking away from me that's when I have I have to wake up and I have to find a solution. And that's when I, I started to go to the hospital into an anorexia center when they, they're helping you. And, you know, I've been staying this for six months. I've been staying there for six months. And you're not allowed to have any visit for six weeks. You're completely isolated from the world, trying to regroup and trying to find strength to just want it to live again. And that took me a lot of time, but I was able to battle through this and and go back now to my normal self. <laughs> but it took me time, for sure. It's, yeah, it's inc- incredibly powerful hearing you talk about it, Marion, incredibly so. Thank you. Okay. And also t- to see you here today so well, um, which, is, which is wonderful. Um, and I just wonder, when you did decide, I want to play again, I know you weren't able to because of your shoulder. Yeah. Your shoulder prevented you to, from doing so. But two years ago, you decided, I want to give it another go. Yeah. Was that part of the process of, be, of, of feeling better? Absolutely. For me, as I say, the Wimbledon in a way saved me. And I felt, well, if I want to completely sort of rebuild my my brain in a way or the way I'm thinking or the way I see life, it goes by the tennis court because it's where I feel confident about myself because I know I can do this. I know I can be a good tennis player and I proved it before. So to rebuild my whole confidence that was completely broken in pieces, I felt by just being on the court and hitting tennis balls, I would be able to 
be back to where I was and it's exactly what happened so physically I in a way knew I wouldn't be able to go all the way and go back playing full time but just spending those months on the court being with people that was truly helping me every single day to just find my happiness again that really helped me to in a way recover faster because I would probably get there at some point but maybe in five years time from here and I just felt I, I waste enough years because of that person I didn't want it to waste my whole life so I had in a way it was a sort of speeding the recovery through tennis and I just loved those moments being on the court hitting balls being in the gym it reminds me my time when I won Wimbledon and what I was doing and doing it back again and I really felt that I was grabbing on life again and I was smiling to life again and that was for me what saved me and actually when we walked over just now we're, we're recording this at the Australian Open over the final weekend and we've, we're going to commentate together over this weekend and we walked over from the player area and you were telling me how your husband wants to, wanted to play with yeah. you today wanted to play tennis with you today and, you, and, you, and he's really up for it and you're out there a lot these days yeah, absolutely. My my husband loves tennis. He's a professional football player. So for him, it's just easier to pick up tennis because he can run two balls. So when I'm like, now I'm like, I don't want to run anymore. Please just give me a break from running because he hits constantly drop shot to me to make me run. I'm like, honey, I just don't want to run. I have enough. But what I like the most is him playing against my father because this is absolutely hilarious. It's the one to watch for sure because my dad really wants to beat him because he doesn't want to lose to my husband <laughs> and my husband doesn't want to lose because he's a professional athlete and he hates losing and this is the funniest thing when I have just my dog running after the balls and my dad playing against my husband and during those moments I, when I felt okay my life is back where, where it used to be when I'm just happy you know happy about simple moments and, and just enjoying life but I hate running on the tennis court that's for sure <laughs> sounds like the dog's the winner in that scenario to me um, it's a great story that um, you've now added to your portfolio of tennis experience mm-hmm. coaching yep you're coaching Yelena Ostapenko and this started towards the end of last year I watched the tournament that she won and it was great I mean I really found it cool to see you on the sideline for a start and mm. to see that connection between the two of you and she's had a I mean, I know she's had a really tough time in her personal life really yeah. recently with her, her father passing away but she'd also had a tough time on the court hadn't she because here's someone who'd won the French Open out of the blue nobody was predicting that and she just it was so exciting the way she did it and the couple of years since then have been quite difficult for yeah. the most part what has that process been like for you how did you get together and and what did you find when you first started to kind of get inside her mind Mm -hmm. well we were friends since um, actually I really met her in in that wrong I was when she won because I was doing the on-court interview and most of the time I was interviewing her especially when she started to be in the quarterfinal and onwards and um, and I always felt she was this sort of bubbly happy smiley really hard hitting of the ball girl and you know, I've sort of seen my game into her game when she was really attacking, hitting those balls, taking risks and, and going out and really winning the French Open on her own terms, really taking the match away from, from Simona in the final. So we stay in touch and we stay in contact. She had obviously her mom having a huge influence into her career and then sort of outside coach stepping into it. And yes, the year after she struggled, she lost first round in Roland Garros. It was not an easy year. And the year later, after the, actually 
really was a year when she massively struggled, when she just couldn't get past those rounds into Grand Slams. And it was quite traumatic for her after winning Roland Garros because the other players are like, oh, you know, you were here by chance in a way, and now you're losing first round and first round and first round. I always felt she had still tennis in there. It was just a matter of giving her the confidence again, really, because she could really hit the ball the same way she did two years back, but she she was lacking a little bit of confidence to do it again. And she contacted me earlier on in 2019. I couldn't be there. She wanted me to go, I think, to Charleston and Bogota with her. It was the time when I was in Dubai. It was way too far for me. And I say, well, look, if you hit Europe after the US Open, after the Asian Swing, and I'm here, I'm happy to help you. Then she went on to play, and it was not so easy. And she contacted me when she was in Beijing playing the double still with uh, Diana Yastrzemska, and she said, well, were you able to do at least Linz with me? Because she was to play, supposed to play Moscow after, after that. And I said, I'm not sure I can do Moscow, but I can do Linz with you. I was in Belgium with my husband, so we just went there. And she started to win four matches already. She was in the final. She lost that final because it was not so easy to, for her to play five matches in a row. But we started to have a good connection. I really sort of, I think having the on-court coaching really helped me to just give her the guidance through a match. And sort of giving her the, the insurance she couldn't win it. Because, you know, when you drop in the ranking, it's not easy to find the confidence again. Especially when you get into a tight situation, you feel a little bit lost and you're not sure what to do. So I sort of gave her that and... We were able to build on this. She got a wildcard to Luxembourg. She won Luxembourg, playing some great matches. And, um, and we sort of went on and, and carried on to, um, to giving her that confidence that she can play back to her best tennis, giving her, obviously, the, the base also physically because she has a, quite a demanding game in order to be on the ball and hit all those winners. She needs to be on the ball, and it takes a lot of footwork, and it, you know, it takes speed as well. So we start from fitness, and you go to tennis. But having the same game as me, in a way, really helped me to sort of giving her some tips to her, to what she should do into a certain situation. And most of the time I played to those players she played against. So that's also a little easier for me. <laughs> Did you always think you'd, you'd want to be a coach for, for a period or have you surprised yourself at all? I mean, it clearly really suits you. I always loved coaching because I feel you can Really, if you are able to, by your advice, help someone to pass a situation, it's sort of very rewarding. And also I feel that missing the adrenaline of the competition, let's face it, and missing the action, being sort of sideways but almost in the action was, was a good sort of medicine for me to, to almost not relieve really my career but have the feeling of being on the court and playing the match which you don't feel when you commentate the match. So for me, it was really something I wanted to do, but I had to find the right fit with the right player. And and obviously having almost the same game style really helped me if I had someone to coach who played four meters behind the baseline playing defensive game. Of course, I can help them, but it will be you know, a little bit more difficult when I used to be one meter inside the court trying to, to hit a winner almost every time I was returning the, the service of my opponent. Have you had to change anything about her outlook? Because it seemed to me that when she would play in the last couple of years, she would just go for everything, no matter where she was in the court. <laughs> did, have you have you had to... I mean, I know you went after your shots, but do you, have you had to sort of try to pull Hold that back, back or not? Well, a little bit, but it's more about the tactics she should use to beat her opponent. And this is why, for me... 
outside of the Grand Slam, it's a little bit easier to really have an impact on her because I'm able to sort of giving her the right pattern she should use almost two times per set or at least one time per set if the other one is not calling for the trainer or go for a bathroom break. And the input I can have every 25 or 30 minutes is stronger. That's something I can tell her before the match and then she goes on court and play the whole match by herself. So it's just going to be a, a slow process when then she would be able to realize it by her, on her own and just do it automatically. But she has some patterns in her brain that needs to be slightly changed sometimes against some opponents because they're just too risky and they just don't work, especially if she doesn't feel 100%. But that said, having someone is able to hit a winner almost from any part of the court is also, as a for a coach, a huge plus because you know your your player can really hit through the court. So it's trying to keep her strengths and just adding some percentage that would make the difference at the end of, of the match. What are your feelings on on-court coaching? I mean, it's obviously quite a, an interesting situation with Yelena that you're able to have this this huge impact, but then you don't have it at the, at the slams. Yeah. And yeah, w- overall, what are your feelings? Well, for me, I love on-court coaching. I think really as a coach, and, and especially I think as in past players that didn't play so long ago, you can really have a lot more impact than just standing outside watching the the match. But I think if we go on into our relationship and that goes for a longer period, then she will be able to get those, those moments in time when she doesn't need me anymore. And she will be able to realize it on her own because you know it becomes almost automatic. But up until we get to that point, having the court coaching is a little bit more secure in a way for me because I know that I can go on court and she can tell me, I can't play, I can't do this, I can't do that, it's too difficult and whatever, and I can just calm her down and, and give her easy solution that she can use. And most of the time so far has been working. So <laughs> we just go from, I can't do this, I can't win, to actually winning the match. So it's, it's you know, it's funny in a way. It's like parenting, isn't it? If they yeah, don't need you, you've course. done your job. I yeah. think that's a Mary Carrillo line. Because <laughs> what do I know about it? <laughs> no, well, I think there's truth in that. A um, couple of final thoughts, uh, Marion. What well, one? I just have to ask you about Serena Williams because mm-hmm. she was uh, a rival of yours. You yeah. you played us several times. I think you know her. Yeah. And you've commentated on her. You you've seen the whole career. Is she going to get to this record? This, she's on 23 slams. We sit here. Another chance is gone. Mm. What do you think? Well, she wants to get to 25. She doesn't want to only equal. She wants to pass it. Does she have two grand slams in her racket? Yes, for sure. But that said, having losing all those finals, I didn't expect... If you have told me before she played those finals, okay, Serena is going to play that many finals and she's not going to win one, I would have said, you're crazy. So I think it's very hard to predict anything now in women's tennis. When I my husband was asking me to call the winners of the two semifinals, I got it completely wrong. I said, Bauti and Sade, it was actually the opposite. So I'm like, you know what? In women's tennis those days, there is no point trying to call anything. It's impossible. It becomes really impossible. I have, to, I have to, say, to say it. I think Serena for different reasons, but there is a sense of, Urgency in a way that she has to win because she doesn't have like five years in her bag to play. Is is that hindering her? That that urgency. I think so. Yeah, I think when you see her play, there is a lot more anxiety in a way when she plays that she used to have before. You know, because 
of her age and, and the time is passing and, and the trauma she went through of losing all those finals. It's not the same Serena when, when I saw her play in 2011, 2012, 2013 when she was just marching on the tour. So for sure those years passing are making it a lot more difficult for her, but does she have it? Of course she can do it. Will she be able to do it? I didn't think I would say that one day, but it's questionable. Does, does she have that mindset that you described of not allowing yourself to fail? Do you oh, think for that's sure. he, if, how if she she's, feels about 25? If she's the queen of... If there is one person who is number one in that, it's her. 100%. So then she'll do it. Well, like I hope so. I hope so. I truly... I'm massively also I'm a big fan of hers. We are very close friends. But I have to say, and I have to admit that would have... If you have asked me before the match, she played Kyung Wong. She, I commented that match in the US Open. It was not even a tennis match. It was 45 minutes. We could barely count the points that Kyung Wong actually won. And a few months later, she's beating her here, third round on Broadway Arena. It would have been impossible for any tennis expert to call that. Impossible to say it before the match. And it still happened. So I just feel right now in women's tennis, there is so much extra components that come to a match. That's why it's almost impossible to call it. We have to say that for tonight, you you have to go with Muguruza, but at the end of the day, it might be Kenny winning two sets, you know. You're on the right podcast, Marion, because bad predictions is what we, yeah. what we deal <laughs> it's in. It's what we're all about. <laughs> yeah. I've got one more question, Catherine. Is it true, Marion, that in the 2007 Wimbledon semi-final, when you were a set down, you'd lost the first set 6-1 to Justine Ennan, is it true that Pierce Brosnan was one of the reasons that you ended up winning? It is the entire reason why I won this match. It's absolutely 100% true. Tell us what happened. I remember extremely vividly exactly what happened. So I lost 6-1. I was on the opposite side of the Royal Box. Then I went on to go through the side of the Royal Box. And the match before was Anna Ivanovic against Venus Williams. And when you attend the Royal Box, you attend the full day. So Pierce Brosnan was in there, which I couldn't see because I was warming up. By the time he got refreshments, I lost the first set. <laughs> so he came back, <laughs> sit in the front row next to Philip Brook. And I remember taking my balls and just looking up just like that, just like I did for the be- from the beginning of the match because it was my first time on center court. And then seeing Pierce Brosnan, I'm like, no, I must be dreaming. So I'm just looking at my head, counting my balls. I'm like, how many balls do you have? Three. Went back up again with my head and seeing it's actually there. And I just told myself, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you take a minute and a half between each point, but you're going to stay an hour or more on this court, not losing in two sets, playing the worst tennis ever, because what is going to think about you? And then I end up actually winning the match. He was waiting for me at the end of uh, the match at the top of the stairs outside of the, um, of the center court. And the next day, because we played Friday evening and then Saturday, they didn't have any roof back then. The next day when I arrived at the downstairs locker room, because I was not upstairs yet, a huge bucket of 100 roses, red roses, was waiting. And because it's final day, I thought it was, they were just putting flowers all over the locker rooms. And the lady attendant of the locker room said to me, she was quite pissed, she said, huh, I think those roses are for you and they're from Pierce Brosnan. And I had a handwrite letter from Pierce saying, 
I really admired you playing that match. Uh, you played brilliantly. I'm, I'm sorry I can't be there for the final. I'm sure you will do well. I end up losing that final. <laughs> it was all his fault, by the way. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. Oh, James Bond. <laughs> huh? What a hundred red roses from James Bond. Yeah, that was not a bad day until I lose the match. <laughs> it was, started en- well, didn't end up well. <laughs> but you ended up holding that trophy yeah. six years later, and you actually had the Venus rosewater dish on your pillow in your bed for the next four days. You actually slept, you physically slept with it. I physically slept with it. Then you, you're taking a replica back home. You're right. not taking the real trophy. Okay. There is only one edition of the real trophy that goes back to the trophy gallery. But I had a three-quarter size of, of the trophy replica that I slept with for an entire week. Not only four days, an entire week. And I was saying every single morning to my dad, did I really want Wimbledon? And my dad was like, yes, you did. That's actually absolutely true. That's I love that. Great story. And that will be forevermore, Marion. You will Thank always you. be a Wimbledon champion. Thank you so much. And it has been a, a real pleasure to have you with us here on the Tennis Podcast. Yes. Thank, Thank you, Marion. And, and most of all, it's just great to see you well, see you around the circuit, see you coaching Yelena Ostapenko, and we wish you nothing but the best. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.